The following podcast contains spoilers. Check the episode description to see the exact times of the segments that contain spoilers. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the first episode of the Vulture TV podcast, a new show where we'll discuss what's happening in the TV world and why that is on a weekly basis. From deep dives on single episodes to conversations with showrunners and writers and looks at the business side of television. I'm Gazella Mami, Vulture's TV editor, and with me are Vulture TV critics Margaret Lyons and Matt Zoller-Seitz. On this segment, we'll talk about Sunday night's episode of Girls, which continued the Mimi Rose storyline and introduced a couple new characters. The first half of House of Cards' third season, and Network TV's recent success stories. At the end, we'll answer a few questions from you, our listeners, as well. If you have any questions for us, please email us at tvquestions at vulture.com. Hey, guys. Welcome. Hey. Hey, how are you? Thanks for being here. So on last week's episode of Girls, Hannah and Adam finally break up, and we're introduced to Mimi Rose, Adam's new girlfriend, who's played by Jillian Jacobs from Community. In the week after that episode aired, everyone kind of talked about what a refreshingly nice character she was for girls. And a lot of people focused on one scene where she told Adam she had an abortion and how she didn't need him, she wanted him, and why that was a good thing for their relationship. And the internet responded really positively to that. And it felt like the show was deliberately framing Mimi Rose as this kind of perfect cool girl, only to have that all fall apart this week when we learn more about her and her ex-boyfriend, Ace, who's played by Zachary Kinto. <laughs> and before we... He's a character, too. <laughs> he is. They're both uh, quite interesting characters. And before we dive into them, we're going to play a couple clips from the episode where there are two concurrent narratives going on. Long story short, Mimi Rose and Hannah are alone together, and Adam and Ace are alone together, and each of them has an interesting conversation. So let's listen. Why do you keep coming to her stuff and supporting her then if you think she's so manipulative? Uh, because I uh, will always be in love with her. Okay, fuck this. We live together. Enjoy it while it lasts, because I'm going to get it back, motherfucker. No, this is fucking bullshit! You think she really likes you, monkey face? You're just a chess move, buddy. Motherfucker, just pull over! All right, buddy, hey. Okay, and how would we go about discussing this? I wouldn't just give him to you, but... I feel like we could figure something out. I would subtly distance myself from him as you incrementally worked your way back into his life, perhaps through a joint creative project. Okay, you are insane, and that's insane. So my question is, are are Mimi Rose and Ace the worst people we've ever seen on Girls? And <laughs> what did you make of these scenes and how would you describe their behavior? Wait, I like Mimi Rose still. <laughs> I like, I, I like. I don't know, like is a weird word to use with this show. I mean, they're, I don't find any of the characters terribly likable, but I think they're all really interesting. The, the thing that jumped out at me about these two new-ish characters is that uh, they each seem like shadow versions of the, of the main couple. You know, they're, mm-hmm. they're, it's like they're and it's part of that pattern of you break up with somebody and then you replace them with somebody who is alarmingly in the ballpark of the person that you broke up with. That's that's at least part of what I got out of it. And that's what made it so funny to me. 
Right. I liked, I mean, it, it definitely set it up where Hannah sees her as so different from her. And then yeah. everyone else is like, no, you guys are very similar. They are very Hannah's similar. like, she's the opposite of me in all yeah. these ways. And it's like, oh, no, you guys are peas in a pod. Like, right. Yeah. And, not, and then it seems like they almost have a bonding moment, Hannah and I think Mimi they totally Rose. have a bonding they, moment. They like leave the laundromat holding hands, I think. Yeah, they like go to a bodega. And so, I mean, yeah. they definitely. They're certainly bonded by their completely clueless entitled selfishness. I mean, that whole business of demanding to use the restroom and then sort of fleeing from the scene of the crime. (laughs) It almost seems like moments like that almost seem like they're in there to bait people who hate girls. Yeah. Although I, I mean, I think maybe like the ace character is there as this like joke vessel of a human. But what I like is that especially as the episode goes on and I can say this having seen further episodes. It's one of the things where girls never quite gets to parody, right? Like, right. even as stuff is very extreme, like, I live in New York. It's not it's not far off, right? Like, it's not the Portlandia version of it. Like, it's no. it's pretty close. Like, it, it is, is pretty, pretty close. close. And I think, like, you know, Mimi Rose's, um, on the one hand, seeming very together and cool. And she has this apartment and, you know, nice pajamas and stuff and is, like, right. so comfortable getting abortions. It's like, she's just so futuristic and great. Like, I don't know. I feel like I know people like that or I think that that's how they are. Right. I'm I'm sure I don't know anyone. No one is really like that. And that's what the show kind of tells us is like no one is really the people who seem very cool to you are just still, you know, broken vessels of garbage like the rest of us. Right. And like, I I don't know. I like that the show can be um, can like really poke at that sensation in you without ridiculing it. I love how the show, like like the films of Whit Stillman and a lot of early Woody Allen films, it captures that sense in which people have no idea what caricatures they are. Yeah. You know, it's like, and, and I think uh, at, at some point during this episode, it suddenly occurred to me that almost this entire series is that scene in Annie Hall where John Lithgow is playing the actor and he says, touch my heart with your foot. <laughs> you know, it's like everybody on the show has a touch of that, you know? <laughs> they don't know how ridiculous they are. And that's that's maybe the only thing that makes them endearing. How do you think the show has handled the characters' development in general this season? We've seen them go through a lot of changes. Um, I think most of this, the first three seasons dealt a lot with how it feels to fail and to have sort of everything not go your way and to that's feel true. very lost. And this season is a lot more about, like, what happens when you triumph? And that also not like not really being as much better as you thought it was going to be. So right. you you got this huge prize. You're going to get to go to this prestigious program. This is what you wanted. And you got it, and you didn't like it either. I just got to say this. Uh, you know, I, uh, on Twitter, I can count down almost by the second how long it's going to take when I mention girls and say something positive about girls for somebody to chime in for no reason at all. Often somebody I've never even talked to before to say that they hate girls and they hate Lena Dunham. It's incredible. It's unbelievable. There's like nothing else like it. There's a lot of shows on the air that are that kind of can raise your hackles in one way or another. But this is the only one I can think of where it's like people have Google alerts for when people say nice things about the show so they can come in and tell you it sucks. They don't watch it. They hate it. And they wish Lena Dunham would die in a fire. And it's unreal. It's just because like they all have rich, famous parents. And it's just like... Oh, boy, am I not interested in that angle of the conversation. (laughs) And people, the degree to which people go out of their way to make that what the story of girls is, is so extreme. Well, and also the show is much, has always been, and I think more so than ever before, aware of the kinds of people it's portraying. And and I think that its own criticisms of its characters are almost always more astute than the criticisms that people write when they do their hot takes about girls. (laughs) You know, I mean, like this moment, there's just this lovely throwaway moment 
moment where uh, Marnie Marnie is sort of half bonding, half hating on her boyfriend, and they're and they're going over the argument about the the. Uh, the playlist, and one of them is "Song for Marcus Garvey." Yep, I so... thought that I heard that. I wanted <laughs> to make a list Marcus of, but Garvey. all the titles, it was just like, oh god, it was. And they just, they just, they just flick it like a like a breadcrumb, and then they're <laughs> done with it. You know. So, Margaret, you've said that you think this season is of Girls has been amazing so far. That I think you mentioned this five episode stretch particularly has been really great. Um, what makes it stand out to you? As I mean. Um, I think just on like a personal level, I'm much more interested in stories about success because stories about failure are just sadder, right? Like that's why the pilot of Breaking Bad, it's like, oh, all this bad stuff happens to someone. I was like, oh, this is just like a bummer, right? Versus (laughs) this person does bad stuff, which is like, okay, that's a story. So I think for girls... Uh, it's not like I didn't like other seasons. I I really like girls. I'm in the tank for the show, and I assume people will harass me about it on Twitter, and I will block <laughs> all of you. But um, what I like is seeing, you know, that feeling of not you're not right out of college anymore, and you don't have that excuse of like I'm so young. I just of course I don't have stuff together. It's like well now, you know that's bullshit now and so you have to have a little bit more stuff together and to see each of them in their own ways get some of that togetherness get some of the sort of feet on the ground clear-eyed look at stuff that's no prize right like having your stuff together is really boring and awful we all hate having our stuff together and so watching them sort of deal with that i just um am very drawn to i guess Mm -hmm. especially because i feel like they did a very thorough job of portraying the earlier parts of their lives, and now this sort of next phase totally. is feels fresh. It feels to fresh, me. Yeah, yeah. It feels really new. It does, and yet, and yet, I I always feel like Girls is on the cusp of being one of the all time great shows, and it and it never entirely gets there for me. It's a very frustrating show because the highs are so great. I mean, like the 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 finale of of uh, season two, which is like almost like this deranged kind of bizarro universe reinterpretation of the end of a romantic comedy with like Adam practically crashing through a wall like he's the Hulk and and it's 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 just tremendous and the the, the all the whole the entire grief arc from last season particularly the scene in the cemetery uh one man's trash I mean all of these things are just great um and there were two or three scenes in this most recent episode that I thought were as good as anything the show has ever done but there are also these things that just don't quite work for me and some of them are minor, like uh, the fact that the Iowa storyline, although almost everything in it felt very honest to me in one way or another, it's still one of these situations where it's like, let's liven up the show by having uh, Hannah get into the Iowa Writers Workshop. And it's like almost immediately you can sense a show going, oh, my God, we've created two separate but adjacent shows. We need to get her back to New York as yeah. soon as possible. And luckily, it's as you say, it's a show about failure, so they can do that. But it felt very TV to me. But a bigger issue for me is... I kind of am having an increasingly hard time believing that these people would be friends. Yep. To the point yeah. where you see them sitting around a, ca- uh, 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 you know, at the diner together, and it's like the only reason these people are in this diner together is because girls needs to establish once in a while that they all know each other. This would never happen. These yeah. people don't right. go to a bar together. You can't imagine like, oh, I got, I just got good news. Whom shall I text? I know my friend Shoshana. Right. It's like I don't buy it. One of the things that is frustrating for me. One of the other things that's frustrating for me about girls is how they'll zero in on certain types of behavior and really examine them mercilessly from a lot of different angles, like to a degree that I don't think the show gets credit for. But then they'll have this other behavior that is almost completely unexamined. And the one that really jumps out at me is Adam's anger. 
Adam's anger, I'm hoping that at some point they they really deal with this head on because his behavior is uh, inappropriate, except perhaps in like a community theater production of A Streetcar Named Desire. (laughs) You know, like when I, I don't care what happens to you. It's not an appropriate response to destroy whatever happens to be near you because that's like, you know, that's a threat of violence. That's like a code. It's saying this table, this chair, whatever could be you, even if they don't intend it that way. And and the show seems oblivious to that, which bugs me. Yeah, it feels like maybe they tried to, you know, hint at uh, his family life a little bit, but they never really explore it fully in terms of explaining his actions. So the TV show is Girls, which airs Sunday nights at 9 p.m. Eastern on HBO. Let us know what you think. Tweet us at Vulture, visit our Facebook page, or email us at tvquestions@vulture.com. So let's move on to the show everyone was watching this weekend, House of Cards. And in this segment, we're going to be discussing the first half of season three. We'll take on the second half next week. So this season begins with Frank Underwood as president, six months into his presidency. And he and Claire are having a lot more difficulty convincing everyone around them to do what they want. And on top of that, Claire's goals, mainly to be ambassador to the UN, are brushing up against Frank's goals. And we kind of see them wearing on each other more than we have in previous seasons. The pacing also feels a lot slower this time around. It's not quite as dramatic as season two was. More generally, how do do both of you feel this season compares so far to season two, and how how do you think it's doing? So far, I like it better than the other two seasons, honestly. Mm -hmm. And I I say that with some trepidation because I don't know where they're going to go in the second half of the season, but I like the fact that Frank has gotten what he wanted. He's risen to the highest office that it's possible to rise to. <laughs> this is maybe the only thing it has in common with girls. <laughs> He's not happy. Well, there's also a lot of bad sex on House of Cards. <laughs> That's true. That too. That too. I, I sense a chart coming up. Uh, but uh, yeah, I like that. And I like the fact that it's more procedural, that things are being kept more on the level of realism for House of Cards, you know, by House of Cards standards. He's he's not pushing somebody onto a subway track and getting away with it, you know. Those things feel more realistic or the the absence of those things. But certain things like his America Works program, I'm kind of like, could that ever happen in real life? Does the president have the authority to to Well, that. Yeah. And also, you know, (laughs) he he became president in six months. You know, it's like there there are certain things you just have to accept. And I've kind of made peace with the fact that this show, even though it carries itself with a certain uh, self-importance that I don't think is earned, it's it basically knows what kind of show that it is. And it's the kind of show where somebody can become president in six months uh, on the basis of a string of murders. (laughs) I mean, I feel like House of Cards has this image of being this like high prestige show. And then when you hold it to the kind of scrutiny that you hold Mad Men or The Sopranos to, it does not hold up. At all, it's no. an, like it looks like an excellent show. It seems like an excellent show, and then when you watch it, it's just like a, a pretty good show. You know, there's a lot to it that I enjoy. I do miss Cashew, my favorite character from season two. <laughs> um, I feel like for me, scene to scene, I like when the characters. I think the character bonds between the various people are interesting, and and I, you know, especially for Frank and Claire. But then it runs into the problem where governing is not actually interesting, right? The most boring parts of the West Wing, it's like, I don't care about the votes on the Hill. Do you know what I mean? Like, Oh, mm-hmm. see, but I always liked those. Like, I, I always those... like that, you know, we got to get to a certain total and whose arm are we going to twist to get there? But that to me feels like backdrop and that that is, you know, 
this is something that comes up a lot in actually improv comedy, but that's that like behavior is always interesting and context is only sometimes interesting. Right. And so I think for House of Cards, all of this like context, like and then this will happen and these are how the dominoes fall, gets exhausting versus the behavior of the characters and how they feel and act and what they what love looks like to them, what hurt looks like to them, how you mm-hmm. can tell that they're sad. Mm-hmm. And I think it loses track of any kind of emotional connectivity when it puts so much emphasis on the domino after the domino. Right. And, like, when it becomes too goal directed. Yeah. Well, I think like, of, let me get to be president. It's like, why don't you tell me what you're feeling? That's why I think it, that's why it's, it seems so promising to me that he can't go any further. Right. He, I mean, except to get elected, I suppose. But even that just seems like an addendum to what he's already achieved. I guess I think I'm so much less interested in the story of him being president than I am in him resenting not being president. Yes, yes, yes. Although I also like the tension between him and Claire. Sure. Yeah, that's and that's speaking, by far the best part. Speaking of that, we... we we have a clip here that we'd like to play from episode six where Claire and Frank have their first real fight of the season after Claire makes a speech against the Russian president, who is very clearly Putin, I think, um, in defense of a revolutionary who committed suicide. Do you really want to discuss courage, Claire? Because anyone can commit suicide or spout their mouth in front of a camera. But you want to know what takes real courage? Keeping your mouth shut, no matter what you might be feeling. Holding it all together when the stakes are this high. We're murderers, Francis. No, we're not. We're survivors. If we can't show some respect for one brave man and still accomplish what we set out to do, then I'm disappointed in both of us. I should have never made you ambassador. I should have never made you president. So this feels like the the critical turning point moment of the season. We've been seeing Frank and Claire kind of butting heads throughout, and they finally just lash out at each other. Do you think that they will be their own undoing after being, you know, each other's support for so long and having a united front? I don't know. That's kind of the final frontier. Actually, that's, you know, they're the Boyd and Raylan of this show, maybe. <laughs> I mean, the last thing I want is the two is a show where the two of them have turned against each other because yes. we already know what shows are like that are about that. And I think it's interesting to see a show where however often they sort of have things that seem like transgressions against one another, they neither of them consider it that. And so watching them, you know, cheat on each other and being pretty open about that and that not being you know, fracturous. That's something that they just acknowledge because that's part of their life. And um, when I think it's in season two when Claire's talking about why they never had children and she's like, oh, this is we thought we were called to serve in this way. And thinking about it is like, oh, what a united way to think about something like that. That's so intense that you know, how is our marriage called to serve the world? That's an, that's not the kind of pressure that is on like a regular ordinary marriage. Yeah. And so I think Frank and Claire, um, obviously, you know, their relationship is the most interesting part of the show. And I think the tension between them and when she he says, I shouldn't have made you ambassador. And she says, I shouldn't have made you president. Wow. What a big moment. What a big yeah. offer. Right. Yeah. That's about as extreme as that fight could possibly get is acknowledging a that she is as much a power player as he is and B that that she could have chosen not to that right. this that this was an mm-hmm. option and she chose it and it wasn't just something that they got caught up in i think that e- the echo of that idea of what have i picked versus what have i become is i 
is the tension that is the mm-hmm. most interesting for me. For sure. Well, they need love, but they love power. That's that. That's the big conflict between them. And I wonder if the push isn't going to come to shove at some point. So the show we're discussing is House of Cards, and the full season is currently available to stream on Netflix. We'll discuss the second half right here next week. And if you want to let us know what you think, tweet us at Vulture or visit our Facebook page. So we'd like to shift gears a little and talk about the business side of television. And we're going to bring our resident TV business expert, Joe Adalian. Joe, are you there? I am here. Hi, Joe. How are you? I'm well, Gazelle. Good. Hello, Matt. Hello. Hey, Margaret. Joe. <laughs> Hi, Joe. We've been seeing a lot of networks putting out shows that everyone is talking about, buzzy shows. And what's interesting about some of these buzzy network shows is they're not necessarily piggybacking off of cable trends. Shows like Jane the Virgin, Empire, Fresh Off the Boat, they, they've all received praise for being quite original. What, what do you think the networks are doing right? You know, it's 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 weird to me. I, I've you know, for the longest time, we lived in a world the last five years or so. It seems where most everything that was buzzy existed on cable or and then streaming networks. Um, everything that was big was still on mostly on the networks. The networks still, you know, had the biggest shows with the biggest audience. Um, and there were exceptions like uh, the Big Bang Theory certainly has big ratings. Um, you know, I don't think it's all broken down. I think cable is still where some of the better shows are on TV. Uh, but broadcast in the last year or so, year or two, seems to f- maybe figure it out a little bit way to a little of a way to compete a little bit more um, and to capture some of the buzz um, by doing shows that sort of hit that sweet spot between being broadly appealing um, and good. <laughs> um, and that's yeah. and that's and it's not an easy. Thing to do, you know. I don't know that there's. It's hard to just define one thing that's that's done it. Um, and I'd be curious what Matt and Margaret think. But you know, when, when you see shows like, uh, you know, Jane the Virgin and 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 How to Get It with Murder and Empire, not all of them are going to win Emmys. Uh, most of them won't. But but they certainly seem to have upped the quality level, the talkability level. Um, and it's it's uh, it's sort of refreshing to see the network sort of fighting back uh, for dear life. Maybe it's just the fear of death. Uh, that sort of got into the networks, and they've decided, well, we've got nothing to lose. And you know, it, it's probably what allows the network to do um, a show like uh, Empire. You know, uh, uh, it's been a long time since we've had a broadcast network yeah. drama with an all Af- I mean, mostly African American cast. I mean, that show completely exemplifies this trend. Its audience has been up every week. I think it was at 14 million yep. viewers this 13. week. 9, and yep. Typically, with new shows, we see their numbers drop from week to week. Is this unprecedented, Joe? Well, we haven't seen a show go up almost every week. It's it's aired since um, since forever. I mean, since Nielsen started keeping records back in the '90s <laughs> for this sort of thing. I mean, but there have been shows that sort of maybe you know the, the closest parallel to me, honestly, for a show that starts big. You know, there are some shows that start sort of small and sort of are discovered. Um, How sort of started small and then sort of getting bigger, or a show can change time slots and get bigger over a season or two. Uh, what's interesting about Empire is it started at a really big for today level. Um, and then kept is kept getting bigger uh, due to word of mouth and buzz. Um, and and you know the last time I remember anything like that happening is ER, which premiered big in 1994. And then I remember as a TV reporter uh, covering television for the New York Post back then, uh, we we got the ratings by fax. I'm dating myself. And and every Friday morning, uh, Ed Harrison, who's the uh, who was then a publicist at NBC, he's now at CBS. Um, he would send me the, the the ratings, and I would call him immediately afterwards, saying, "Oh my God, it's a 40 share." It's 
it's a 42 share? Could it go to 50 share? I mean, I remember reading those ratings every week in Entertainment Weekly when I flipped to the ratings <laughs> chart. And being impressed. But to be clear, those numbers for ER profoundly dwarf however popular Empire sure. is, we, right? We, so one thing that's happening, it's not just that these shows suddenly are yep. so popular, it's that the definition of popular has gotten much smaller. 13, I mean, 14 million is good, but a couple of years ago, American Idol was even at like 22, yeah. right? Warren, Warren, Little, Warren Littlefield casually said to me at this uh, Paley Center event that if Star Trek had the, were on the air right now and had the exact same ratings that it had when it was considered too unsuccessful to keep on the air, it would be the most watched show on television. By a lot. By a lot, yeah. right. <laughs> I mean, we're talking about Jane the Virgin as a success. It's certainly a creative success, but right. ratings-wise, dozens of people watch that show. And it's only a success for the CW because it's doubling what they were doing on Monday nights a year ago. So, yeah, the audience level Which was, I mean, was like a talent show has more ratings than that. <laughs> like, like, I mean, like literally at a middle school, a talent show will draw <laughs> well, more people than some stuff the CW has aired. Like, I, I'm not saying that these shows aren't good, but I think the idea that somehow, like, networks finally figured out the formula, it's that the formula changed. I was just going to say, I think they have figured something out, which is that they've they've adopted certain storytelling techniques that were perfected on cable in the last 10 or 15 years. But what they've done is they've removed the density of it. The, a show like Mad Men or Breaking Bad or even before that, something like Battlestar Galactica was something that you had to not only pay very close attention to in order to absorb everything and keep the plot straight, but you could go back and rewatch it and rewatch it and still discover new things. I don't think that's necessarily true with a show like Scandal, which is not to dis- not to detract from it in any way. It's just to say they're playing a different kind of game here. And I think it's more about big impact in the moment and creating this shared experience. And I think, you know, I, obviously... I. I'm just kind of pulling this out of the air here, but I people ask me, why do you think Empire keeps growing in popularity? And I think it's because people keep talking about Empire. Yeah, no, and that's something, and, and networks still have this advantage over cable in that they still reach a broader amount of people every week, uh, just even with failure than most cable networks do, which have to sort of um, slowly get people into their ecosystem, unless something's airing after The Walking Dead, in which case they can immediately get people to watch it, because it's the biggest show on TV among uh, people under 50. But going back to what Margaret was saying, I, I mean, yeah, everything is relative. We live in a different media universe where now everything is dist- uh, is is split up and splintered and people have so many more viewing options, so many different channels, so many different things to do beyond watch just television. You know, they can now watch television that was created 20 years ago just as easily, if not in some cases more easily than they can stuff that's airing right now. But I think that's sort of interesting. And, and let's also face it, the other thing that's going back to the smaller audiences is, is a lot of these shows also with have in common is diverse cast and people sort of flocking that you know one of the reasons that empire is doing so well is of the 14 million or so people who watched uh last week nine million were african-american it's well over half the audience uh is coming from one group of viewers and there's nothing wrong with that but it, it certainly says that it there are people who are underserved audiences that are underserved um sort of can sometimes that can help you know build an audience of overall well, of course, not you know the other forty percent of that audience was not African American, and I really feel like this is the takeaway. And I was talking about this with a, a, with our mutual friend Lane Brown, the New York Magazine uh, editor, and I was saying, you know, if Scandal and How to Get Away with Murder and Empire have accomplished anything, it should be to definitively end this conversation about whether uh, white people will watch shows with predominantly minority casts. We're done. It's 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 well. indisputable. They will. It's it, yeah. I don't even see how you can continue the conversation after this, especially Empire. Let's move on to some listener questions. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Margaret. 
Our first question is from John. The Voice started in 2011 and is already on season eight. Master Chef Junior season three started a few weeks after season two ended. Is this a new trend that's happening? Am I just noticing it? And if it is a trend, what's going on here? So I think one thing that's happening is once a show gets buzz, a network doesn't have time to wait until next year for that to come back. The buzz cycle is very short. And so for MasterChef Junior, a show I actually like a lot, by the time I recommended it to people, it was kind of ending. And it was like, oh, did you guys watch that yet? It's totally good. It's way less corny than you'd think. It's sort of charming. And these kids are really talented. And once you hear that a couple times and you finally sort of hit that threshold of, okay, I'll give it a try. If that show is over, you're never going to get that person back, right? You can't convince them a second time to give it a try. So I think networks want to make sure that if you've ever considered watching The Voice, you have every opportunity imaginable right. to watch The Voice. If you've ever thought for a second that MasterChef Junior might appeal to you, it is present and here for you should you choose to take that opportunity. You know, this is actually all started with with Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, the early days of reality are unscripted. You know, ABC made the decision when Who Wants to Be a Millionaire right around 1999-2000 was hot. They made the decision to burn that show to the ground. It, it started out one night a week, then it was two nights a week. Within a year, it was literally five nights a week. And then the show was dead three years later. Um, and reality shows have, have, have sort of mostly followed the same pattern of rather than just doing one cycle, uh, doing two cycles a year. Also, the other reason is because networks are desperate. They get ratings. The reason Mattress Chef Jr. is back so quickly is because Fox was dying uh, this fall uh, and, and, and Master Chef Jr. had to be enlisted to sort of help them uh, come back to life. It did well. So they said, well, good, let's put another cycle on. They were ready for it. And 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 um, I think, and with The Voice, the same thing. NBC was at its absolute lowest before The Voice came on. As soon as it was a hit, they had a decision to make. Are they going to follow what Fox did with American Idol, which is one of the few reality shows that stuck to a once a year cycle? Um, and it sort of worked because it extended uh, its run for over a decade. Um, but that said, American Idol used to air at least two, sometimes three nights. Well, sure, a week. they definitely, exactly, they definitely um, uh, took as much advantage of it can within the season, but they kept the right, season. It's not like oh, Fox judiciously well, dulling out piece by piece they, of American they Idol. They, they, like, they, when American <laughs> Idol was big, it was like wall to wall American no, Idol. I would, I would the argue. networks always do that. I remember when they did that with news magazines. Sure, oh my God, like forty-six sure. datelines oh and God. you know three sixty minutes. And I mean, I think the trend is noticeable now, but it didn't just start now, right? The real world has often, I think, I mean, for the last many, many years aired two cycles a season. Same with Top Model, same with Survivor. Um, I feel like there was a time where Dancing with the Stars aired at least one cycle per year. That has definitely slowed, but still exists. I don't know. It's With some shows, it's fine. Survivor has been okay with two cycles a year. Amazing Race, the same thing. I think Idol, uh, you know, the singing shows, I think I, I will predict that at some point soon, The Voice is probably going to go down to once a year, but we'll see. Maybe not. All right. Well, our last question is from Liam. Liam wants to know what what's going to happen now that the Thursday light Thursday lineup on NBC has finally dried up. Where will the next hip shows that appeal to both urbanites and small town America come from? Are we just not ever going to have a <clears throat> new event TV night again now that media is so decentralized? 
I, I, I mean, I would argue on NBC, probably not for a while uh, there, especially when it comes to comedies. I, I think to some degree, you know, um, we do have those event nights. You know, Thursday night is an event night for people who like uh, high profile sort of thrilling dramas on, N- on, on ABC. It's sort of migrated over there. I was going to say, Sean. Sean yeah, TGIT yeah. is as big as is, is, is doing its, its own thing. And, and ABC has been very, very wise to brand that. And other networks, I know for a fact, are incredibly jealous of what she's been what he which what ABC and she have been able to accomplish um, you know Sunday is sort of a big event night too for America uh, but we all go into our different corners you have the shows that you watch and everyone sort of can pick and choose this is girls night this is uh, Walking Dead Night, which is still big for it's the biggest uh, show on TV among people under fifty. So I think there's some of that, but I, it's Good Wife Night too. It's Good Wife Night, yeah. exactly. Starting so, this Sunday again. So I think it, it, to me, it although it seems like every night, thanks to social media, uh, at least Sunday through Thursday, it seems like every night can feel like a big night of TV. Uh, but Sunday and Thursday still have, I think, a lot of cachet. Uh, whether we're going to have ever comedies that sort of reach the broad audience again, boy, I don't know. I, comedy is so well served by cable with some really great cable comedies and, and ABC does well with family comedies on Wednesday. They've got a nice block going there. Um, you know, is it going to be the same as NBC? I doubt it, but you never know if the, if the shows get there. Maybe. Also, let's not overly mythologize exactly <laughs> yes. what Thursday must see TV was because as you know, we have Seinfeld and Friends and ER, but then also a lot of like garbage. The 839. Do you know what I mean? Like, why have I seen, why have I seen every episode of Veronica's Closet? Not because I'm proud, because like, I'll watch the single guy. Like, that's not time I'll get back. Right? Like, that's not, it's not that it was like so valuable and like, finally, America had achieved perfect television night. There was a lot of crap in there too. But you could, you could weed out the crap though. But you didn't, right? You're like, I didn't. (laughs) You didn't. You're right. A lot of times it wasn't most CTV. It was, well, why not TV? (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, obviously, you know, if you're going to have friends anchor or something you can have a lot of runoff audience lead out from that and yeah. certainly anything that was on between friends and er i watched i watched all of it but i remember not thinking all of it was a precious treasure i'd carry in my heart forever the way that like <laughs> you know 30 rock is but like i don't think suddenly susan holds that same weight no. for yeah, me yeah. right like it's, for yourself <laughs> and i say this as someone who saw every episode of suddenly susan every episode of jesse like i'm not i'm not Jessie, trying to put oh people down here i've seen these shows i remember them some of them i even remember fondly but you know, it's not that NBC had this formula and it just somehow something changed. The formula itself worked pretty well, mostly, but there was a lot of other stuff that you don't remember the failures that were also in there because you remember the successes so clearly. So obviously now that has changed, but don't let your sort of 90s wistful self lead you to believe that all of Thursday NBC was was somehow driven by quality. Um, I think program programming blocks are basically dead. I just think they 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 don't fit with the way people watch TV or live their lives anymore, and it's the same reason that the evening news has been in a steady decline for the last twenty years. I mean, it's just inevitable. Everything is so fragmented, yeah. and and the generations coming up, a lot of them increasingly don't even own televisions, and maybe never will. And and now we watch and now we watch one show, eighteen episodes of one show at a time, or a marathon on cable, <laughs> right. or a binge. Yeah. So it's like we've decided we've 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 been empowered. So it used to be networks would say to us, "Stay tuned," and we'd say, "Okay." Uh, now we're like, <laughs> yeah. screw you. We've got other stuff to watch. Well, that's it for this week's Vulture TV podcast. Thank you, Margaret, Matt, and Joe. Anytime. Thank you. Thank you. 
Please let us know what you think of this show. You'll find us on Twitter at Vulture, and you can email us at tvquestions at vulture.com. Our producer is Henry Malofsky. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. The Vulture TV podcast is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply. That's P-A-N-O-P-L-Y. If you like the show, please be sure to tell a friend and subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to leave us a rating or comment wherever you subscribe. It helps other people discover our show. I'm Gazella Mommy, and I'll be here as always with Margaret, Matt, and Joe. And we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening. <laughs>